It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to Truth Seekers. We're going to try this again. For those that don't know, I spent the weekend at the cabin, and uh, our guest and I called me to verify that the interview was still on, and I somehow thought he said tomorrow. And this was, of course, on Saturday. So yesterday, I went online very excited to uh, you know, conduct our interview and then uh, realized that I was a day early. <laughs> But these things happen. What can I tell you about tonight's guest? For those that don't know, he was actually the first uh, the first person that I ever interviewed in the land of UFOs, conspiracies, and Bigfoot or whatever. Um, you might remember the first, the very first episode of the Midnight Hour show was on one of my very favorite UFO cases, and that would be the Kecksburg UFO crash. 
uh, our guest tonight, Stan Gordon, had been heavily involved in the Kecksburg UFO crash since it began. Um, he has been involved in that UFO incident since he was a child, and that perhaps might be what got him started down the rabbit hole of UFOs, Bigfoot, and paranormal events. Also, for those unaware, Stan Gordon uh, now has a hotline in Pennsylvania, sort of famous in Pennsylvania, that if you have a paranormal event happen, whether you see UFOs, shadow people, demons, uh, you have a haunted house, um, have a Bigfoot sighting, a dogman sighting, or some other strange cryptid creature lurking in your area, you the, the person to call is Stan Gordon. And unlike a lot of what I like to call right-click researchers, Stan Gordon actually gets boots on the ground. He goes and he interviews people. He takes reports. He collects evidence. And this, my friends, is sort of a dying art in this world of the Internet we're in. Um, I'm often amazed myself at how much information that you can dig up just making phone calls, but nobody seems to do it. And unfortunately, most people's idea of research today just involves Google. Um, but you can't get the full story just on the Internet. And I'm a firm believer in doing real research, boots on the ground whenever possible. Um, I'm trying to do more of that myself lately, picking up the phone, making phone calls, doing document requests, talking to uh, the locals that were there when these events transpire and take place. Uh, Stan Gordon has been doing this for decades, and I feel like he is just a tremendous resource when it comes to information about the paranormal, especially when it comes to what I think is the two things that he's focused most on most of the time with most of the reports that he is receiving, and that would be Bigfoot and UFO sightings. Um, we're doing this old school. He's not very big on computers, so we're going to do an, uh, an interview right on the phone. We're going to see if we can't get him on the phone today. Hopefully, he'll be uh, available. Hey, Mr. Gordon, it's Steve Campion. So sorry about yesterday. No, it's quite all right. We managed to have a fun show uh, anyway. <laughs> these things happen with a live show. And I can tell you what did happen is that I've been bouncing back and forth between this cabin in the Poconos and my home in Warminster, Pennsylvania. And so all my calendars and all my stuff is in my office. I misheard you and thought you said, are you okay to do the interview tomorrow? Just assumed that I had to, you know, didn't even look on my calendar. I just went live ready to interview you. So I apologize. I'm glad that you're here today. Well, that's, um, I'm glad to be here as well. Yeah, I was telling the audience that you're actually the first person that I ever interviewed. And I mentioned yesterday that I, I contacted so many people starting a new show. Nobody was, was really uh, very helpful, but you were. So I want to thank you and recognize you for that. And uh, where to even begin? Because I haven't talked to you in quite a long time. You told me that the UFO reports are going nuts right now that you're getting. Is that the case? Uh, well, they've been active. I can tell you even the last couple of weeks, we've had some very interesting reports coming in. You know, my hotline's been open since 1969. And I get calls all the time. It never stops ringing. Reports come in here all year round, every year, all month of the year. It's amazing. And, um, of course, uh, a lot of sightings come in, and we can pick 
figure out what people see. There, there are many UFO sightings that turn out to be misidentification of natural man-made objects. But every year we're receiving reports you cannot easily dismiss. And over the years, I've investigated multitudes of very close-range, low-level UFO cases that are not lights in the sky, but large structured objects. And um, these reports continue to go on. You don't hear about them in the news because the witnesses don't want any publicity. You know, people from all walks of life call in, men, women, children, and you've got you know, engineers, you've got police officers, you've got pilots, reputable people are reporting these incidents, and they just don't want any publicity. So that's what you rarely hear about in the news. Yeah, but it's interesting that they feel okay to go to you. And I mentioned that you have somewhat of a reputation in Pennsylvania for being the paranormal guy. Like if, if people have a strange experience, they call your hotline. And if you're able to do it, you often go and talk to the, these people in person, right? And you get try to collect evidence and get the story and and have record of that, right? Well, I've been doing this now over 62 years, believe it or not. And in all the years I've been doing this, Hard to believe. I've never seen a UFO or a Bigfoot, which I've investigated hundreds of Bigfoot sightings in Pennsylvania as well. And for many, many years, well, going back years ago, and for many years thereafter, from 1970 on for many years, I uh, had founded and directed three volunteer research groups that investigated all kinds of phenomena across Pennsylvania. And uh, the people involved in the group, the majority of people were specialists. We had scientists, we had engineers, technicians police officers, former military people, uh, just all kind of specialists. And we did this around our full-time job, so it was all volunteer. And I had it set up, and we would respond to cases 24 hours a day when we could, which we did in many, many cases. That's why we were able to document these cases so quickly. And while the information was fresh, and in some cases there was physical evidence, we gathered the evidence for labs examined. And it's just amazing what, what we've done over the years and, and the case is going, but it's an ongoing phenomenon. And so many people don't realize that this is going on much more often than people realize. Yeah, and I, I'm so interested in, in the reports that you get because I'm in the same state you are. I'm on the other side of the state, but I'm still very close to you. And, and I'm hopeful that uh, I can get with you and get uh, maybe some information about Bigfoot and Sasquatch sightings that may be close to the Poconos. Because I think that you might have heard there's a lot of sightings in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania of uh, what can only be called a Bigfoot, right? That's correct. And there are sightings all over Pennsylvania. There have been for years and years, even though I get a majority reports I get from southwest PA, western parts of the state, we do get reports from all over for years and years, going back to at least the 1970s. And uh, I'm aware that, yes, there are, there is activity going on. Uh, up there on the Pennsylvania-New York border. Uh, there has been for a long, long time. We've heard these reports. I know of one area up there that um, the last few years, uh, there's been a lot of activity up there, a lot of strange activity, even besides Bigfoot, which I'm sure we can talk about. Uh, some of these other reports, and you may have heard about some of these other type of phenomena as well. But yeah, Bigfoot sightings go on every year again. It's just like UFOs. They go on every year. Um, it, it's more sporadic. In some years, um, for example, 1973 is when some amazing, amazing things were happening here in Pennsylvania. I ended up writing a whole book about it several years ago, and it's just, it was an incredible time. 1973, and luckily, 
my first research group was pretty well set up by then, and we, we were investigating cases around the state, so we were able to respond to many of these incidents. And in fact, the surprise to us as people were finding out about our research group, we we're receiving many uh, referrals from the news media, from law enforcement across the state. So we're out there day and night around our full-time jobs investigating these reports. And back then, a lot of law enforcement agencies were investigating some of the cases as well. And a lot of it was being covered in the newspapers across Pennsylvania during that time. So 1973, first we had the biggest UFO wave ever documented with hundreds and hundreds of UFO sightings all across the state from January 1st to the last day of the year. And then in the summer of 1973, we had the biggest outbreak of Bigfoot sightings that went on to early 1974. And, and many of those Bigfoot sightings were very close range, very detailed reports. It, it wasn't like shadow in the dark or somebody seeing something running a half a mile down the road. Many of these were in daylight. Some, when I tell you some people were 10, 15, 20 feet away from these things, there were some reports like that. And they saw these things from head to toe. And in some cases, there was more than one creature seen together. And what was fascinating is my teams would get out there sometimes within minutes to hours after the incident occurred. So you saw the emotion of the witnesses. You sometimes found the physical evidence, which was pretty calm back in those days. We got a lot of footprints that we made castings and made tracks. And uh, you also saw in some cases the animal reactions, which I have seen. Yeah, and just so you know, I'm sharing I'm sharing where people can get your book. I have this book. I, I this is one of my favorite books because I live in Pennsylvania, and uh, it's called Silent Invasion: The Pennsylvania UFO Bigfoot Casebook. And this is the one that details the 1973 huge uh, flap, right? That's correct. And there's and again, there there is so much in that book. People even today from around the country, around the world, they still contact me about that book. Because, you know, I started writing about those incidents back in the 70s when this was going on. And there was a lot more ridicule back in those days. But I was in contact with many of the well-known names in the Bigfoot UFO field back during that time from around the country and actually around the world. And I was writing about some of the strange things that I was finding, which we can talk about. And a lot of them acknowledged that, yeah, they heard about these reports, they were aware, but they were reluctant to talk about it or writing about it because they were afraid of being laughed at by their fellow researchers so they didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. My position has always been, I don't have the answers. This is what we're documenting and this is what we're finding. I believe these reports are authentic and I'm sharing it and hopeful, hopefully that more witnesses and other researchers will get more information out. And now in more recent years, you're hearing a lot about the same things I wrote about in the 70s. And it's going on not only in Pennsylvania, but all around the country and around the world, similar phenomena is going on. Let, let me tell you about a few of the things I found in 73, which I go into the book in great detail. We get out to some of these locations, there'll be trails of these huge footprints mm -hmm. in all types of ground conditions, including in the winter and the snow, with a very large stride between them. But the tracks would just suddenly abruptly stop when there should have been more tracks. And, and there's no way in the summer conditions we found them, they could have been fabricated. Yeah, and it's interesting to me, like people don't people don't walk around in their bare feet in the snow, right? In the middle of winter. And and who has bare feet that big? I, I remember from the book some of the descriptions of the sizes of these tracks, which is always amazing to me, the size of the tracks. And you've got casts of some of them, correct? That is correct, yes. And and this is going on again in more recent years. I mean, people send me in photographs and videos of these tracks where you can see 
clearly a, a path of these large tracts, and then suddenly there's no more, and there's no reason for them to just stop without there being more tracks. And there's no other tracks around there. there there's no way it could have been fabricated under those conditions. And then in 73, besides the disappearing, well, the, the abruptly stopping tracks, other odd things would come to our attention. And um, one of the patterns we began to see was you'd have a UFO sighting in a certain area. Within minutes, hours, and days later, you have a, a Bigfoot sighting or vice versa. And then we had some of those amazing incidents that I, I wrote about in the book in great detail where you had a UFO and a Bigfoot seen together at the same time and place. And um, that became very, very intriguing. And, you know, if we talk about some of these cases or get into some of it, I am not suggesting, and I, I keep stressing this, that Bigfoot is a passenger or a pilot in a spacecraft from another planet. Mm -hmm. Once again, the UFO phenomena is very, very, it's very involved, very unusual. Many, many years ago, looking at hundreds and hundreds and thousands of cases over the years, I began to realize it's very possible there's more than one origin to the unknown category of the UFO phenomena. So, you know, when I started in this, everybody believed the unknowns were probably interdimensional uh, travelers. And, and I think it's possible maybe a small number might be, but I think the more I know about the phenomena, and it's very complex and very strange, I found a lot about this, especially even in more recent years, that uh, we appear to be dealing with a phenomena that has a physical and a non-physical component to it. For lack of a better term, we'll call it interdimensional. And, and I think the government's finding more and more about this, too, because you, you heard a lot about the government uh, investigation more recent years. The program's going on, and the fact that you know Navy pilots, Navy personnel have seen these objects, and they're doing the same thing. I've been saying for years, these things suddenly appear. Sometimes they look physically solid, then they begin to they can physically change form. They can appear and disappear, and... There's, there's much more of this than any of us understand. But also, I have cases with Bigfoot, many of them. And again, it's not just me. This is going on all over the country around the world of incidents which suggest that Bigfoot may not be a normal, physical, unknown animal. It might be something much stranger. And I can tell you about cases like that. Yeah, I've often wondered. We talked about this before, that there is... There is a, a great deal of evidence that in, in places where there's a lot of UFO sightings, we also seem to, you can cross-reference that there's a great many Bigfoot sightings. So uh, there, there is a, uh, a documentary for people, uh, if they're interested, uh, featuring Mr. Gordon. It's called Alien Paranormal Bigfoot UFOs and the Men in Black. And this is a documentary. Uh, it's free on Voodoo Fandango with ads. Uh, I'm going to share that just so people, if they're interested, can can check that out. That's a great documentary that talks about the connection or possible connection between Bigfoot and UFOs. It seems to me that some of this phenomena may be interrelated somehow. Why are people seeing UFOs in the same area they're seeing Bigfoot creatures? Yeah, and actually there, there's some other really good documentaries that a little more recent um and from the top of my head one is called paranormal bigfoot mm -hmm. and there's also another one which has been really popular it's very good about the chestnut ridge and all the phenomena here in western pa along a chestnut ridge were all kind of yeah i saw that one and made me want to drive out there right <laughs> and, and uh, that's called invasion on chestnut ridge yeah, they had a lot of sightings of them, you know, a lot, a lot of sightings. Uh, and, 
you know, I have a cabin in the Poconos, and the, and the one thing that always bothers me is that people say that these are misidentified bears because uh, we have black bears. And the only time that I've ever seen a black bear on its hind legs, it was scratching its back on a tree. But it was very obviously a bear. The, you know what I mean? And so people discount these things as maybe, I'm sure some of them maybe misidentified bears or other animals. But what do you think about the argument that people are seeing animals and they're not seeing, you know, anything extraordinary? Okay, well, well first of all, again, many of the sightings I've investigated, and there are multitudes of them, and other investigators here in PA too, these are, are daylight sightings, many of them. They're close range. Many experienced hunters and outdoorsmen have confronted these things. Many of those guys I interviewed over here were guys that spent years out in the woods that never believed in Bigfoot, had never seen one, but once they did, their lives were changed. They, they couldn't believe they saw something that was not supposed to exist. And of course, with a lot of the reports of, of these creatures, these things are, are walking upright, sometimes a little stooped over, but one thing that really stands out is that the arms are exceptionally long when they're walking upright. Mm -hmm. They're down past these, sometimes almost down to the ground. And that's one thing, of course, is much different than a bear report. Yeah, obviously. So you've been studying this thing for quite some time, and, and I think that you may have changed your opinion. Was there a time that you thought, like many, that Bigfoot was an unknown primate that somehow survived out in the woods in, in remote areas? And, and what was it that, you know, because a lot of people seem to think it, it's just a primate, that an undiscovered primate. But considering all I've read about Bigfoot and, and the way it disappears or seems to come in and out of people's perceptions, I think you may be right on the interdimensional side of things, right? Well, you know, I started this when I was a 10-year-old kid, very interested in science and electronics. And I uh, started again, I was 1959. And then uh, I've been out in the field since 1965, since the textbook UFO incident. And then I had my groups from 1970 for many, many years. So we're out there day and night investigating these reports. Well, in the early years when I got involved, I was aware of Bigfoot. I was aware of the reports around the country here in Pennsylvania. And there's been a long history of Bigfoot sightings in PA going back to the Native Americans and even the newspaper accounts of what they called the wild man of the woods, the wild man of the forest. They even called Bigfoot back in the early days. And um, so that's been going on for years and years. And I always felt when I got involved investigating sightings in the 60s in Pennsylvania, that they were probably some type of unknown primate. Well, that was until early 1970s, 72, and then that massive wave in 73, when these cases we were investigating, that we were not looking for this type of thing. But when you start investigating these reports, and you have so many independent people at various locations, sometimes miles apart, even hundreds of miles apart, who don't know each other, and they're telling you the same little details, you get the same patterns over the years, you then start realizing, well, there's something going on here. And, uh, you know, I started telling you about some of the oddities that we found in 73. You have the UFO Bigfoot pattern, you have the tracks that suddenly abruptly stop, and then people were telling us strange reports that even daylight they'd see a Bigfoot standing at some location, and within seconds he would physically disappear and reappear a short distance away for example, or they would see these things running off and and they would suddenly just vanish, or sometimes the whole body was not clear, it was kind of misty or foggy or something, 
negative feature sections of a body, not the whole complete solid body. I mean, these are such strange reports, but they're not one or two reports. You're hearing more about these cases now. And um, if it was one case that happened up in Fayette County, Fayette County, you'll probably hear me mention more than once tonight. It's an area that some of the one that's Chestnut Ridge area uh, that goes through Westmoreland, Indiana County here in Southwest PA, extends down to several miles outside of Morgantown, West Virginia. It is one of the most active areas historically, year after year, including this year, for UFO sightings, Bigfoot, mystery booms, other cryptids, all kind of phenomena goes on along the ridge. In fact, right through the last couple of weeks. And uh, it's just amazing what's going on out there. And I found a lot of patterns that involve not only Bigfoot and UFOs, but I've found more connection now with other cryptids as well. It is a very complex phenomenon. But let me tell you about this case that happened. Um, yeah, sure. I'd love to hear it. 1974. And, and again, as you mentioned, I saw one day, we're going to go into great detail about this case. And it was February 6th. I remember it very well. Uh, some of your listeners who were around at that time will remember that time period. We had a, a large national trucker strike. There was some violence on the highways. Uh, mm -hmm. There was gas rationing. So you remember, people remember that. There was gas rationing at the time. And because of the problems on the roads at the time, the National Guard and the state police were patrolling together in Pennsylvania. So you had some National Guard with the state police respond to this incident. Uh, I couldn't get gas in my hometown till the next morning, so I couldn't get up to the seat the next morning. But the story was that this woman was in her little cabin home way deep in the mountains. She lived there for years and years. She knew animals very well. She was a very good shot. And it was a normal evening. She's sitting there watching TV when she hears this little noise on her front porch. She had some empty uh, soda cans, pop cans out there, and something was knocking the pop cans around. And her first thought was that a couple weeks before, she had a pack of wild dogs coming through and figured the dogs probably came back. So she thought, you know what? I'll just go over and I'll get my, my shotgun. I'll shoot over the head and I'll scare those dogs away. So that's what she her intention is to do. She gets up. She walks over to the front door. She grabs her shotgun, her 16-gauge double-barrel shotgun, loads one chamber, opens the front door, switches on the light, and steps out. And there's no dogs there. But right there, about uh, six feet away, is this huge, hairy, bigfoot creature, about seven foot tall, that put its arms straight up over its head the moment the light went on. And how does she respond? She fires right into it with her shotgun. She, she, she shoots it. She said there's this bright flash of light, like the flash on a camera, and the creature physically is gone and disappears. Wow, and that's, then that's her in-laws heard the gunshot 100 feet away, and they called her on the phone to see what was going on. She explained to him. So um, her son-in-law, he grabs his pistol. He starts making his way down that dark road to her cabin home. And as he gets closer, he, he indicated he was surrounded by four or five hairy people with eyes like coals of fire. He started shooting at them and went into the cabin. And it wasn't long after this, this large object that described like a Christmas ornament with uh, flashing lights on it hovering over the woods at the same time. And that's when they called the state police. And um, like I said, I couldn't get up to the scene till the next morning, but I did interview the primary investigator, and he said by the time they found the location, whatever happened there was over and gone. But he said something very odd happened there. That was based on the animal reaction. 
Because when they got up to the scene, these two had a number of farm animals, including several dogs. Dogs wouldn't bark. They didn't make a sound. And, and I remember the trooper telling me, he said, it was one big dog. I think it may have been Eskimo's fist was in a cage. And the dog wasn't moving. And the guy opened the cage up, and the dog wouldn't move. He tried to pull the dog out. There was no response. That dog should have ripped his arm off. And the next morning when I'm up there, everything's back to normal. All the dogs are barking loudly. That was, the, and that was something that's very typical of other cases as well. That was the case that convinced me, and there were other similar type of incidents went on that uh, indicated we're dealing with something that's both physical and non-physical, which is probably why there's never been any bodies, whatever these things might be. It's also interesting to me that it appears to be a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, we have uh, the Yaren, we have the Skunk Ape, we have, uh, you know, the Yeti, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, uh, we have uh, the Orang Pendek. It appears that in all areas of the world, there are reports of large bipedal hairy men in remote areas. Do you think it's all related? Well, I, I think that the interesting thing is you have similar reports. And, and here in Pennsylvania, again, we have your so-called typical Bigfoot report. They're generally six to nine feet tall. But we have some other really good documented cases where some creatures may have been as tall as 12 foot, believe it or not. So where is the 12 foot tall or even six to nine foot tall creature high? And how much food do they need to sustain themselves? That doesn't even make any sense when you look, look at what we're dealing with. And um, and then we have smaller ones. They're about four to five feet tall. And the whole thing is, with all these sightings for years and years throughout the world, nobody yet has confirmed a body. We hear stories. We hear rumors, but nobody's ever come up with a body. And again, you know, I, I don't put it past the possibility that maybe there is some type of unknown species out there. But I think a lot of what we're dealing with, the more I know about it, the more other researchers are finding out that we may be dealing with something that's much more unusual. And one of the things that's been showing up, again, I've talked about this for years, but it's showing up more and more around the country, is that, well, what I, what I started investigating is what I call mini UFO sightings. I started investigating them back in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. It's something that very few people talk about, but you're beginning to hear more about this in recent years, too. So these small, very small objects are not high altitude in the sky. These things are lower to the ground. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. They, they've come very close to people. They come right up to humans. I've had cases of pacing vehicles and entering homes and cars through open windows and then gliding around and going back out the window or going right through the body of the vehicle, for example, right through a wall of the house. And these objects are anywhere from the smallest ones look like huge oversized fireflies or lightning bugs. They're about an inch or two in diameter. Yeah, these orbs. You told me you told me about all the reports. They seem to be increasing, these tiny orbs, and they they come very close to people. So, you know, it's not an alien spacecraft if it's only a few inches in diameter. So what, what do you feel like it is? Okay, well, the majority of the reports are 
are not the real tiny ones. The majority of them are about a one to two feet in diameter or a little bigger. They're generally spherical, but some, there's some other type of configuration been reported. They're sometimes solid and metallic. In some cases, it's just bright light sources of various colors. And um, so it's really interesting. But what's been going on in recent years is that throughout Pennsylvania and, and up, in your, up in your area, we've had reports like this, and other areas of Pennsylvania and around the country, more and more Bigfoot researchers are now talking about this. And you can go online to find multitudes of reports now. The areas where you have a long history of Bigfoot sightings, many Bigfoot researchers are seeing these small spheres of light down in the trees, low in the trees, sometimes approach them pretty closely. And uh, so that's another thing that's going on now. You're getting these reports of these small spheres of light in areas where there's a lot of Bigfoot reports going on. And do you have any sense from all the reports and people that you've talked to about what they are, what they want, or what their purpose is? Well, I wish we did, but you know, there's so many unanswered questions that we just don't have the answers for. And uh, I mean, these cases with these small spheres are really interesting. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a few examples. Um, again, there have been many reports, uh, even on, on busy highways, uh, let me give you one. This is kind of interesting. This is from Fayette County, Fayette City. This is October 2017. So this is early morning hours. This man got up early to warm up his wife's car. So the whole area is well illuminated. The driveway was very well illuminated uh, for the most part when this happened. So this guy's walking down the steps. He's only about 10 to 12 feet away, and he notices something by the right bumper of her vehicle. The lights were all on the area, and the car was well illuminated. He saw an object was about two feet tall and shaped something like a haystack. And he said the object was translucent and shiny and milky white color. There were vertical ribs that seemed to be superstructure, like <coughs> through the structure. The object was solid and glided about one to two inches above the ground and was motionless when he saw it. But he got within seconds, um, it must have sensed that he was there. And um, he got to about six feet away from it, and it suddenly zoomed extremely fast across the driveway to the left side of the car, then made a right angle turn into the darker part of the garage toward the driver's side, and went into the dark, and he never saw it again. So that's kind of interesting, whatever that thing might be. And now here's another report from outside of Pittsburgh. And again, here's another thing that's fascinating about the Bigfoot reports. You know, people are always saying, well, they only see them in... Forested areas, wooded areas, rural areas, we're getting more and more reports in recent years of them being seen in more populated areas in your uh, cities. I mean, that's intriguing in itself. But here's the case. This is May of 2019. So it's early morning hours, and the fellow happens to be up in the uh, kitchen, I believe, was happens to look out the window, and there's a lot of illumination in his backyard, but there's a lot of wood steps behind his house as well. And he sees a small Bigfoot, about four and a half to five feet tall, covered with dark hair, long hair on the head and back, walking on two legs. He can see the arms extending almost down to the knees again. He said the arms were swinging. The area was illuminated by outdoor lighting, so he got a good view of this thing. And he says, he watches this thing enter a particular right in the certain spot and goes into the wooded area. And he said about three seconds later, after the creature entered that area of the wood, that a bright sphere of light, about three to four 
inch in diameter suddenly appeared. He said it was similar to looking into the front of a flashlight, about four, but it was about four feet off the ground. The light then moved a short distance and then vanished. A few seconds later, the light appeared again about 10 feet away. The small sphere emitted a bright beam of light about 10 to 12 feet in length. In a few seconds, it disappeared, and that was it. So here again, you've got these type of reports that are very unusual. Yeah, and just so you know, uh, some of our audience tends to be a skeptical bunch. We have a mix here of people who are true believers. We have a mix of very skeptical people and people all in between that spectrum. So some people are asking about more about proof or physical evidence. Some of the reports that you take, people have, uh, you know, some form of evidence besides their stories. Isn't that correct? Some people have yeah. pictures of the of, of the objects they saw and things like that. So you've got multiple you've got multiple reports of the same thing that would seem to be you know much more believable than a single report right oh, yeah And uh, but what's also interesting was, uh, what 
witness of the case, the son of the farm, the son of the farmer on the property, who he and two young boys went up to investigate after seeing this thing coming down. And it went from a, a huge barn-sized spherical uh, red sphere to a bright white half a sphere, like a big white dove at 100 feet in diameter that was on the ground right above it. And the two creatures standing in the field at the same time. And the guy, just to make the story short, the, the guy uh, takes several shots at the creatures with no effect on him using a 30-odd six. And he was a very good hunter and he sure, sure he hit them with no effect on him. But at one point, when he took a shot with a, he wanted, he had two different tracers with him too. He didn't know he had tracer bullets. He just got that luminous trail. When he fired the second tracer, the largest of the two creatures, so it was about eight foot tall, the other one was about seven feet tall. They cover a long, dark, matted hair. They have no neck. The arms are down almost to the ground. They're very long. They have luminous, glowing green eyes, and they're making these baby crying, whining noises. And when this creature when the man fired the second tracer, the largest creature reached out instead of grab at it and made this loud baby crying lighting noise. And at the same time, that large object just, just vanished and disappeared. It didn't take off. It was just gone. So all the luminosity, most of the luminosity in the area went gone. It was making a high-pitched whining noise. It stopped. The creatures turned around, started walking back along this barbed wire fence towards the woods where they came from. He's firing live ammo into them with no effect on them. And they called the state police. The what do, what are the police? What do the police say when people are calling in Bigfoot? I, I'm just curious what police generally say when people are calling in strange creature sightings in Bigfoot. Do, do they take it at all seriously, or do they kind of laugh it off and you know just answer the call, but but shelf whatever they you know shelf the report of it? Well, I can tell you, back in those years, the '70s, the '80s when the public reporting many, many uh, incidents like that, they were not laughing them on too much in many cases. Each case is different. You know, I guess it depends on the personnel who might answer the phone. But back then, they responded. And in this particular case, I remember the, the trooper told the witness when he got to the scene, when, when the trooper arrived 45 minutes later to investigate, the witness said, look, just forget about it. You're going to think I'm crazy. And then the trooper said, tell me along the line that, I have to investigate. We had a report of two similar creatures on the mountain the night before. I have to investigate the reports. But when the trooper and the witness went up into the pasture to look around, the trooper told me the area where the object was on the ground was self-luminescent and glowing, about 100 feet or more in diameter. He said the farm animals would not go near it. He told me that if I had a newspaper, I believe I could have read the newspaper from the light coming off the glow. So that was very interesting. Yeah, definitely very interesting. There seems to be a, um, a, a newer sort of belief. Like I said, it, it used to be that people believed or or the consensus, I guess, of researchers was that it was a, you know, unknown primate. But as more information becomes available, more and more people talk about these things that many people call high strangeness or areas where there's UFO sightings, Bigfoot sightings, other cryptid creatures, um, maybe even ghosts or haunted houses, hauntings. Do you believe that maybe all of these things are somehow related? It's all the same um, phenomenon or different faces of the same phenomenon? And the more I've learned about, especially in the last several years, the more I know about the time, like I said, we wouldn't even begin to talk about this tonight. It is so complex. It is so involved. But the more 
know about the phenomenon is the more seems that a number of different anomalies may somehow be interconnected. I don't have the answers, I can tell you that, but I can tell you one pattern I found years and years ago was that many close-range, low-level UFO encounters, so we're talking not just lights in the sky, we're talking large, what appear to be solid objects, but don't forget, I've also told you that even in case we have a what appear to be solid physical object, at times will fade away, disappear, or change physical form. That even happened in cases this year. And so you have that type of thing going on. And um, so it, there, there's more to this than we understand. So you, you've got that, and I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I was talking about the the possible connection between all of these paranormal types of right. events, ghosts, demons, shadow people, Bigfoot, dogman sightings, UFOs, alien creatures. Maybe yeah. it's all the same phenomenon and, and different faces of the same phenomenon somehow. And I think more and more we're starting to find out. What I started to tell you was, here's the pattern I found. Many low-level, close-range UFO sightings and many encounters with Bigfoot and other cryptids commonly occur in the vicinity of high energy sources. So you have many sightings uh, around high tension power lines, power plants, cell phone towers, radio communication towers, bodies of water, railroad tracks, gas lines, gas wells. Very, very common. There's definite energy connection to whatever we're dealing with. And the reports get weirder and weirder. And, you know, we've all heard of the Skinwalker Ranch. Well, when I was investigating the 70s was the same thing was going on here. And I began, and I was realizing over the years that there were certain areas that the phenomena, for whatever reason, seems to focus or concentrate on. So it could be a certain geographical location, a certain property where the phenomena occurs. It, some of these places have historically had these incidents for years and years, including up in your area. I know of one. And... There are other places where the phenomenon might just begin. So going back in memory, 1979, if I remember, um, on the border of Westmoreland and Armstrong County and Southwest PA, uh, you had a, a series of incidents that started, but it really intensified in 81 or 82. It all began, as I recall, from people seeing an object fall from the sky one afternoon into a large wooded area. And after that, they began to hear growls and screams and that, and all kind of phenomena began to have. They saw strange lights. And as time went on, they began to have many Bigfoot sightings in the area, balls of light, strange footprints. And then you had also at the same time an outbreak of Black Panther sightings. Oh, yeah, I've always found those interesting, but I've always worried that people are just misidentifying straight black cats because... At my cabin, I saw I saw a big what I thought was a big black cat. I thought it was like a panther, and then it turned out it was just uh, like one of one of the locals had some straight. You know, there's just stray cats around there. It just happened to be a black cat. But on first sight of it, I was convinced that it was a big cat, and then it turned out later I saw it, and it was you know just a regular house cat. But there are some pictures and even videos of these large black cat sightings too that's another interesting cryptid right well again i've, I've written about these cases previously i've investigated quite a lot of them we had uh the last couple of years we had some very very close range daylight i mean i had one guy who was 10 feet away from one scared the heck out of him let me tell you 
And again, hunters, outdoorsmen, very credible people that accounts for these things. And I found some similarity to some of the strange things with Bigfoot. But one of the things was in these areas where you have this outbreak of various Bigfoot, you sometimes have other cryptids. So while you were having an outbreak of Bigfoot sightings in that area, you began to have an outbreak of Black Panther sightings at the same time. And by the way, this event actually made the Pittsburgh TV news and newspapers. It was such a big deal that went on because you had so many credible witnesses. And um, and again, there, there have been so many cases of, of Black Panther sightings. And yet, have there been a misidentification? Yep. Some of the reports are some where they're distance away and people misidentify some very large house cat. But we're talking a, an animal that people would generally consider uh, um, a black leopard or black jaguar. It's not an animal common as part of the world. Yet similar things have gone on throughout the country where these things aren't supposed to exist. But let me tell you of one case I investigated that just shows a similarity with a Bigfoot case I just talked to you about. Sure, sure. So this, um, February 1983. Very, very, uh, it was cold early morning. This man's coming home from friends. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. Pulls into his driveway. His car's overheating. So he goes into the garage and grabs a uh, can of antifreeze, opens the hood, and, be and he begins to pour antifreeze in the in the vehicle, and he hears his growl. So he turns around, and there's this large black tomcat about 20 feet away growling at him. Well, he didn't think too much about it because, sure, there's, there's big cats around there. So a few seconds later, he, he goes back to working on putting more antifreeze in the car. A few seconds later, he hears another growl, but this growl is much louder and deeper, and he turns around and he's shocked because that large house cat has now visibly grown about another foot in size. So the man throws the empty antifreeze can at the animal, which he hit. It growls fiercely at him like it's going to attack him. takes two or three steps backwards and growls as it's moving up the illuminated roadway up outside of his home. He runs inside and grabs his pistol, and he goes outside and takes a shot, but he realized at this point that the animal now has physically grown to the size of what he was, an animal you saw in the zoo, like a black leopard or black jaguar with a long tail and has luminous yellow eyes staring at him. He takes a shot, he didn't know if he hit it, and it physically vanishes and disappears right in front of him. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, uh, it kind of makes you, it makes you wonder what, what is it that, what is it that people are seeing? And, you know, you mentioned these areas that may be hot spots. I've read a lot of research about um, magnetic fields and their effect on the human brain. Is it possible that some of these hotspot areas have high magnetic fields and that might be causing people to believe they see something that's not really truly there? Or in other words, do you believe that there may be some scientific explanation, especially for some of these hot spots where people keep seeing weird things? And historically, there's been many reports in some areas of many strange things. Well, I, I think electromagnetism plays a role again. The energy connection does. Uh, again, you got to remember, you've got animal reactions that animals are reacting to it as well. But physical evidence is the same. I don't think it's all hallucinatory. And um, but again, now here's another aspect of the case, and there's many. Again, we probably wouldn't have time to talk about tonight. But anyhow, you you've heard years and years ago with UFO cases going back to geez, at least the 1950s, at least that early. And um, anyhow, 
you have these large objects that hover over cars, be very close to vehicles, and when they were, the, the vehicle, vehicle would lose power, yep. the headlight begin to fade, and then the object would move off and power come back on. Well, there's not a lot of them, but there are cases I've investigated them in other around the country where, for example, a Bigfoot walks out near a car, and suddenly the, the engine begins to sputter, and it begins to lose power, and as the creature moves off into the woods, the power comes back on, the car works normally. So you have these electromagnetic effects as well. Yeah, this is a very, I've heard that description of the car shutting off in so many different cases. It appears that they have some kind of negative effect on electronics, as if there's some sort of like EMP effect, electromagnetic pulse that shuts down anything electronic. We also see reports of this in some crop circles where people will take a camera or other you know, battery-powered device inside a crop circle and suddenly the, the device goes off and loses all power. That's another strange, yeah. strange, strange phenomenon. I, I don't understand how they're able to do that stuff or why that, that's the case, but it seems to be the case, right? Yeah, and, and also something else I've noticed for years, and I started noticing many years ago that there are times when people attempt to take pictures about UFOs and cryptids and they're normally operating a you know, cell phone camera, their old digital camera, with malfunction at the time. I've even found cases now where people, right after the experience, went to take pictures of physical evidence left behind by the creature and the camera with malfunction. But this has happened more and more with low-level UFO cases in more recent years as well. And you get these other cases with, with Bigfoot as well. It, like I said, this is such a complicated, bizarre phenomenon. There's no <laughs> yeah. We just don't understand what we're dealing with. Yeah, and, and I get that some people are skeptical and, they, and they're like, you know, for some people, no evidence is enough, though. You know, this is a very elusive kind of phenomenon. It's not like, you know, like I'm sure people would prefer they just land on the White House lawn or Bigfoot shows up somewhere where everybody can see it and, you know, um, I wanted to ask you, though, what did you think of uh, what do you think of some of the so-called evidence that others are presenting? There's been a sort of bevy of documentaries about Bigfoot lately. Um, and somebody mentioned one person in particular who's got, you know, some film that he claims are Bigfoot creatures. And, and also, what do you think of the the i don't know decades long debate of this uh patterson gimlin footage well again there's you know i, I deal mainly in pa and I, I don't like to comment on other cases without being directly involved because one thing i found over the years is that even cases i've investigated and written about on the internet i see over the years that people rewrite those stories as accounts and the, and the information changes so it's, it's hard for me to comment you know, on what other people were saying without knowing the, the full details not being involved. I, I've always felt that the, uh, the Patterson film, of all the films I've seen, I've seen a lot of alleged pictures taken by people here in Pennsylvania that the public has never seen, and they're interesting, but it's a lot of it I think we can explain. But I've always felt of all the ones that I have seen, the, if one is real, it's probably the Patterson film. It's always been one that I thought was very interesting. Yeah, I I have a problem with thinking that it's a uh, it's a guy in a suit. But then again, I've seen evidence that may seem to indicate that one of my researcher friends thinks that he found what may be you know like a zipper, 
that that's evident from blow-ups but this is and we're in an age now where people are taking the original film and they're enhancing it and you don't know what i mean i'm a computer science guy unless i know exactly what that algorithm that's doing the enhancement is doing to the original source material i don't really trust enhanced images but people have done sort of forensic analysis of you know like the locomotion of this thing and saying that it couldn't be a man in a suit but then there's other people who claim that they were the guy in the suit and and one guy passed a lie detector claiming he was the guy in the suit this is kind of like the rabbit hole right you get in there and then i suppose the believers are going to believe the the evidence that supports it's real and the skeptics may believe the evidence that supports it's not real and we don't seem to get any closer to you know uh, a verdict right and, and that's right and again even with ufo case i investigate a lot of these come from very credible people but when i when you take the time to investigate the report very commonly they're misidentification this time of year we get a lot of calls on penis sightings you know you had a lot of starlink satellite reports the last few years that you know people were really concerned over but that's what they were so all these things look strange, but when you take the time to investigate, you can explain them. But every year we're getting incidents coming in. You could not easily explain away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, I, you know, I don't know. There's a, there's some some of the so-called evidence, though, it is clearly hoax. What do you think of the number of hoax? Uh, I, I don't know if you did, but I, I followed this uh, one person was involved in two separate hoaxes the first was uh, that they put you know a suit a, a bigfoot suit in a freezer and they even got on cnn claiming that they had a body of bigfoot later the same person uh created a bigfoot uh and put it in a case and was like traveling around charging people money to see it he claimed that he shot this bigfoot and then they stuffed it i mean it is a little bit of a circus, right? With all these people hoaxing things and, you know, it seems to be like a form of entertainment for some people. So people rush in to fill the void of the lack of evidence with fake stuff, right? Well, it, it does happen over the years and that's unfortunate, but I can tell you that multitudes of cases I've worked on, you got very few hoax cases. And some of those were during that 73 outbreak after was making the news. And mainly it was both footprints. And it was very easy for a team to get out there and tell the difference between authentic tracks and other ones. And so that happens on occasion, but um, it's not a common thing. There's more misidentifications, many more than hoaxes. Yeah, yeah. And I would tend to agree with you. And some, some, some you know, I mean, of course, I, I don't want to believe a hoax. So if, if something's fake, I want to know that it's fake. But some of this stuff, especially something like the Patterson Gimlin footage i mean it, it's been analyzed to death and it, and really whether whether somebody will say that's real genuine footage of a real animal or not it depends on who you ask right it really depends on who you ask and i know jeff meldrum and uh, some of some of the other bigfoot researchers are absolutely convinced that that's a real animal and that it couldn't be a human in a suit and other people are convinced it's a guy in a suit but nobody has been able to recreate that with a guy in a, in a suit to that level of detail, in my view, so far, right? I, I don't know. Well, of course, that's an interesting case, but I, I basically rely on the multitudes of witnesses that we've interviewed. We were out to the scene a lot of these cases. You know, 
very detailed accounts where people were extremely close. And there's no way they could misidentify these things, for example, as a bear or somebody in a suit or a large dog, which we had some cases years ago of a large, shaggy dog that people reported, and that's what they were. They <laughs> they thought it was a Bigfoot, huh? It, was, it must have been a big dog. There were some, there were some pretty big dogs that people. I remember one case we had a report during the seventies of they thought it was a dead, a dead Bigfoot as they rode along the road. And when they went back, they found a very large, shaggy dog dead, dead the bushes. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I yeah. I, I, as a child, I once saw a silvery dog like a gray dog in the woods. And I swore that it was a wolf. It turned out to be a neighbor's dog got out of the yard. And I just was young and inexperienced and didn't know the difference between like a Malamute Husky and a wolf. To me, I saw a wolf in the woods, you know, a, 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 some short time later, my father was talking to the neighbors and found out that it was a local dog. So misidentification definitely happens. I wanted to pivot because the UFO folks are getting antsy. They're like, this is all Bigfoot. Where's the UFO stuff? So I wanted to mention that you are probably the world's leading expert, uh, most would agree with me, on the Kecksburg UFO crash. And uh, you began your interest in that as a child, right? You heard the first reports of it, and then you've been investigating it all your life. We've got a, a, a previous interview with you from ages ago about the, the, you know, the basics of the Kecksburg case. But I wondered if you are still looking into that and if there has been any new developments into the famous Kecksburg UFO crash. Well, unfortunately, in more recent years, you know, many of the witnesses have passed away. A lot of the other ones are way up in age now. And uh, so we're just, unfortunately, we're losing good, reputable witnesses. We're, we're not hearing as much as we did. But, you know, I was 16 years old when the incident happened in 1965. I was documenting it as I was breaking on the Pittsburgh area radio TV news that evening in December 9th. And um, over many, many years, uh, I interviewed, I tracked down hundreds of people who were involved in the case. And I have no doubt that an object of still undetermined origin did fall from the sky near Kecksburg in 1965 and was recovered by the military. And... You know, we do hope that maybe someday we'll, we'll really know the truth. I've always kept an open mind about the case. You know, I said years ago, years and years ago, I said some of my ideas were that it could have been some very advanced, very advanced man-made space probe with some type of reentry control capability, some type of secret government or military um, operation. But I said, I don't think we, need, we can completely dismiss the possibility that this thing could be something from outside of the Earth. And uh, again, we could talk for days and days about Kecksburg and all the, the different encounters reporters and witnesses had that night out of seeing the area around where the Arctic fell near Kecksburg. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that the military was there. I mean, there was local newspaper accounts and national stories about it. Many reporters from the Pittsburgh area came out themselves to that area that night from newspapers, radio, and TV. Some of them saw military trucks, other ones had uh, talked to military people, and there's no doubt they were there. And for the government to respond the way they did, they had to know there was something important that came down. And, and I have independent military sources and others that confirmed to me that the object was taken out of there around 1 o'clock in the morning the next day on a military flatbed tractor trailer to Lockport Air Force Base near Columbus, Ohio. It stayed there under heavy security for a short time, then continued on to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And 
Pollard was. It's a very fascinating account. And uh, for those unaware, Ray Patterson is where the foreign technology division is. So anything foreign, and some people, I remember John Ventry and you having a debate about, John Ventry believed, he, he I think somewhat arrogantly said, no, case closed. It was a Soviet satellite that came crashing down. But a look at the trajectory and the times involved, to me, left me unconvinced that it was the Soviet satellite. Though, if it was a Soviet satellite, they would have went and cordoned off the area, collected it, and sent it to Wright-Patterson, right? Oh, sure. That's, we would have done that for sure because we wanted to study that technology. Actually, John Ventry, his theory was there was something called a GE Mark II reentry vehicle, if I recall. And inter excuse me, interestingly, that he brought that out during the 50th anniversary of the case, as I remember. But I also remember that I believe it was three other different sources all came out with other theories on what the object was and they were all different so everybody can't be right and everybody believes they're right i can only tell you there, there's a, there's so much to the story and, and there's certain details that i still have not talked about so i have enough confirmation about but there, there's a lot more to this and you got to remember whatever this object was it, uh, it was moving relatively slowly within miles before it fell it came in from the greater Pittsburgh area out uh, over the city of Greensburg, moved out to Route 30 east of town, made a turn to the south. Yeah, and that's another thing. It made a 90 it made 90 degree turns. And many people described that it was it was it appeared to be under intelligent control. So to me, a crashing Russian satellite wouldn't fit the bill here. And also I, you know, I, I try to pride myself that math is sometimes the answer. You know, people don't like math. But if you look at the available data on this Soviet satellite, it appears to me that that would have crashed in Canada. It wouldn't have made its way all the way into the United States and Pennsylvania. But that's based on my math, and I'm not a rocket scientist. But other people have concurred and agreed with me on that. So, you know, do you think that 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 it being a russian satellite is is can you really uh can we take that out as a possible explanation in your mind yeah there's there's been some very good articles have been written on the internet uh that you can find about this the winers and the iur that leslie kane wrote about when she did her investigation into the case uh you can still find it uh, i'm sure if you go to google mm -hmm. and um anyhow there's a lot of data that was cosmos 96 and we, the interesting thing was that we ended your happens here about 3.18 a.m. in the morning on the same date. But this incident of the, of the object phone was about 4.47 in the afternoon uh, that afternoon. And, and there's a lot of new data in more recent years has come out, which pretty much eliminates Cosmos 96. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. That was my... When I was when I was first really reading and digesting everything I could on the case, my my best explanation was the Cosmos ninety six. But it felt it felt like the further I I got into the story, the more I couldn't believe that anymore. And it's interesting. I'm showing images of the of the recreation of the acorn shaped craft. You said it was about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, correct? Well, witnesses who saw it at the distance said on the truck it looked like about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Some of the local residents who saw the thing fall into the woods that, that afternoon went down right after they saw it, and they found this large metallic acorn-shaped object, kind of an aqua bronze color, 
about the 10 to 12 feet length, about 8 to 10 feet in diameter, semi-buried in the ground. There was no rock marks, no seeds, no piece of like, like one solid piece of metal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. And other people have, you know, the, this Kexberg, the, one of the reasons that Kexberg is so interesting to me is because when you start going down the rabbit hole, the rabbit hole gets deeper and deeper. So other people have suggested that the, that this object bore some resemblance and had something to do with the Nazi bell project, the Glocka, which was supposedly some kind of anti-gravity or time travel experiment the Nazis were doing in the early or in the late 1930s, early 1940s. And I even heard an account of somebody claiming that uh, somebody with a Nazi uniform got out of the Kecksburg uh, capsule here. You know, what have you heard about this part of the story? And do you find it at all credible? Because mostly I don't find that part of the story credible. I can only tell you there have been numerous theories from the time it happens. One of them, of course, was the Glock. I've never seen any evidence of any connection between the two. I've really never seen the evidence that the Glock became an actual working project. Yeah, me and, neither. Uh, and again, I keep an open mind to all possibilities. But I've never seen anything that would indicate that. Yeah, I, I think sometimes people take an existing story and they add to it, right? And and right. you know, but the the one thing I will say is that if you look up the Nazi bell and you look at the Kecksburg, um, like the recreation, um, you know, it, it's it's pretty similar. You know, it looks it looks close. They're both acorn kind of shaped objects. So I guess I can understand why people would make the connection, but I find most of the stories of the Nazi UFOs and UFO programs to be sensationalized stuff that was really created after the war um, by tabloid newspapers. Just like we have the National Enquirer, there's tabloid newspapers in England that were claiming that the Nazis had the honey boo and the, the glocka and flying saucers, and but there's no physical evidence that these things were ever real. They're cool, though. I love the Nazi flying saucers, like the honey boo, and I've got models of these. But I don't know that they were ever real, you know? One of the witnesses that night who stood only a few feet away from the object, most of his life he worked as a, as a machinist. He worked with metals. He said, this thing looked like somebody took a liquid metal and put it into an acorn-shaped mold. It was one solid piece yeah, so it had no rivets, it had no no fasteners that he could see. Right. Yeah, that's and very interesting. Had this unusual markings on the back of the raised up part of the back of the acorn, not like you see depicted on Leslie some of the pictures of the clock, of these raised up markings that he said look more like symbols than any type of writing. And luckily, because his background, he was somewhat familiar with Cyrillic. He knew that, but that was not what it was. So that's interesting. And the, the, most people theorize that the writing on this Kecksburg crashed object, whatever it was, was some kind of alien symbols or alien language. Well, again, only if you saw it that close, they only remember from, from memory. And unfortunately, one of the main witness passed away several months ago. And um, he could only remember years later from memory. And uh, but he said from what he remembered, and over years he went to libraries looking up ancient writings. That the closest thing he could recall was ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yeah, that's very interesting. Very very interesting. And the last time I talked to you, you seemed to 
be uh, talking to some sort of new witness that claimed that he, um, there was something to do with ceramic bricks or something like that, right? That he took to the base or uh, the nearby military base. Can you tell us a little bit about that and that witness's testimony about his involvement with this case? That was many years ago. And that went back to 1990 when we did the season premiere for Unsolved Mysteries on this case. That was the first big national exposure on this incident. It was done quite well. And there were uh, multitudes of people that contacted me with information afterwards. Some were local people who had never come forward. Some were people who used to live in this area and moved away. There were anonymous tips that came in. But there's one fellow, and I'll give this to you briefly here, because I'm, I'm unfortunately I'm going to have to be going. I've sure. Going on. Sure, I, I apologize. Uh, sure. That's okay. But anyhow, um, this fellow's name was Meyer, and he is now deceased. He was from Ohio. He was a truck driver. And he said, I, he said, I saw it on the TV. He said, I guess I'm allowed to talk about it now. Now it's been out to the public. And he went on to tell me that he worked for this large um, supply house in Ohio and that a, a military officer had come to that office, I think he said two or three days after the Kecksburg incident, and ordered this large supply of a special type of glazed engineering brick to be taken to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And um, so anyhow... But I found out later there was another truck driver involved, and for a long time he didn't want to publicly, he didn't want to talk to us about it, but then he finally did. He confirmed the story. The, that other truck driver uh, was escorted into Wright Patterson, told to do his job, and uh, when he got there the first day by himself, he saw that a military uh, flatbed trailer with the tarped object outside this building. When he and Myron went there the next day, the flatbed trailer was there with the tarp laying over, but the object was not there. But Myron, he, they have two trucks now that unload all these bricks. And he sees these guys whose white coveralls with sidearms and periodically changed their outer clothing. And, and at one point, he didn't see anybody around. He went and snuck in the building, and he sees up on scaffolding this large metallic acorn-shaped object with a what symbols are in. There's ladders on it. These guys are climbing up it and they're apparently trying to open this thing up. And apparently at one point they realized he didn't have proper clearance. It was pretty it was threatened and it was told that if you talk about what you saw, we'll throw away the key. Yeah, and which in prison throw away the key. But in twenty years it's all be public knowledge, which of course that didn't happen. So that's that's the shorter part of the story. Yeah, uh, pretty interesting. Pretty interesting part of the story, though. It's a shame that guy passed away. I'd really love to talk to him and get more detail about his possible sighting of it. So, But it's still amazing mystery to this day. It's one of my favorite stories, mostly because it happened in Pennsylvania. And I've been, I drove to that town. And, you know, it's a just kind of a strange, uh, you know, sleepy farm town, right? Yeah, it's a very, very small community.
And um, there's no doubt, again, something fell. The military recovered it for what it was. Well, maybe someday we'll have a true answer. Yeah, yeah, and I hope we get to it soon because I've been following this mystery since I first heard about it, probably when I was a kid, you know, like it was in a it was in a UFO book, but there was just like a one page mention of it and description of it, or maybe two or three pages of some larger UFO book. Well, I, I did hear you say that you got a you got a skedaddle. So uh I, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh and and I'm glad that we could welcome you here on our new show. You know, I got a much bigger bullhorn now here, Stan. And and part of that reason for that is because people like you helped me when I started to start doing this kind of a show. So I'm in your uh I'm in your debt. Thank you for always being willing to uh give me a hand to talk about these strange and mysterious subjects. Well, I'm glad that you had me back on. I'm glad your show's doing well. Uh, people can go to my website, which is stangordon.info, and you'll find a lot of fascinating stories and more recent reports on there as well, with all kind of stuff, with Bigfoot cryptids, all kind of uh, incidents on there. And uh, my books are available, by the way, on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com, and they have a lot of really amazing, well-documented cases from Pennsylvania. Yeah, just put Stan Gordon's name in either Google, and you'll find his website. It's, it's one of the first search results that comes up. Or if you're looking for his books, I highly encourage you to go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and just put his name, Stan Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N, in the search bar, and all of his books uh, pop up. But he's been at this for 60-plus years. Congratulations. Six decades of doing this. You're a crazier man than me, Stan Gordon. <laughs> well, hey, it's something to do, and it's, it's, every day it's, it's a new mystery, it seems, almost. Yeah, well, I hope you'll come back again and talk about some other mysteries with us. And I want to thank you once again for doing this. You have a great evening. All right, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right, thanks, Stan. I hope we talk again soon. Good night. Good night. All right, thanks, Mr. Gordon. Wow, what a great interview, friends. Uh, yeah, the, Mr. Gordon is like the first guy that I ever interviewed uh, when I started this crazy journey. Uh, not many people were returning my calls. They would say, what show? You know, because nobody knew um, who I was and nobody really cared to uh, to help me do a show when I had no audience. Um, so I just want to recognize Mr. Gordon for that because he was great. He was just like, sure, what time do you want to do it? Uh, what are we talking about? And I told him that we would do a whole show just on Kecksburg, and we did. And that's available right now on this channel. It's the first Midnight Hour episode. So please do. Uh, if you're not already a subscriber, hit that subscribe button, hit that notification bell, and you'll you'll know about new shows. And you can come here with uh, when we do the live shows. You can ask questions, uh, offer comments, or interact with us through the live chat. Uh, and also the original interview that I did with him on the Kecksburg UFO crash. You may have some interest in that. He has been following that story since he was a child. He heard the re local reports that happened in the area he grew up in uh, or very nearby. So he heard the local reports on the radio um, and he started following the story. He started collecting newspaper clippings of the story, even as a child. And to this day, uh, he, it's just amazing to me that he started looking into that story or, or having an interest in it right as a child. And to this day, um, Mr. Gordon is recognized as perhaps the world's leading expert on the Kecksburg UFO crash. Um, so I encourage you to check out his website. It's stangordon.info. 
And uh, if you're interested in his books, which I believe are very well researched and very well written, you know, I know there was some chatter in the live chat. That, you know, there's always some negative person, um, you know, saying, oh, where's the evidence? Uh, there's evidence in the books. I've got a couple of his books. Uh, sometimes he's got pictures. They show casts of the Bigfoot creatures. Um, you know, this is an elusive subject. And if it was as easy as just, you know, making films, um, everybody would have the evidence already. Um, you know, but I do just want to mention that we're always respectful to guests here. So, uh, you know, if, uh, if you have questions or comments for a guest, even if you're skeptical of their stories, that's perfectly fine. But, you know, calling a guy a liar because he's here offering his time volunteering, you know, we don't pay any guests here. Um, so all the guests are volunteers. We want to be very respectful to them. He's here recounting experiences, um, He's here recounting his own experiences and, you know, uh, recounting stories that he has taken part in, taken people's testimony about what they've experienced. So calling the liars a little off base, you know, more than a little. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I, I you know, I got a, I, I got a lot of respect for Mr. Gordon, and I would hope that all members of the live chat would at least be respectful. Pix is here asking, did you see the latest on Dodie and Anjali disputing each other on Anjali's time in Intel? No, I haven't. Um, but I'll catch up on that when I get a chance. Everybody's always giving me homework. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to dedicate, uh, I saw an old friend here in the live chat. So I just want to uh, say hello to them. Shout out. They know who they are. Um, Boy, went on some adventures with that guy. And it's funny how sometimes old friends find me here through the show and they show up in the audience going, I, I, I didn't know you were doing a show like this. This is cool. And so, yeah, thanks to all those old friends who somehow find me through the wonders of the interwebs and, uh, you know, uh, catch up, you know. Um, it's always fun to see that. And picks agreeing with you know that it's a crazy time when picks agrees with me, saying Stan Gordon deserves our respect. The man's been investigating UFOs, aliens, you you know, Bigfoot, dogmen, shadow creatures, you know, Black Panther sightings and cryptid creatures for 60 plus years. So to me, that alone is worthy of respect, right? <laughs> Andy Perthier says, Dodie and Angeli, Jeebus, too bizarre. UFO land is bonkers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it is. So I, I, was, I wasn't paying quite close attention, and I'm not sure if there's any super chats, but I'm going to check on the mail. Um, for those that don't know, this is a viewer-supported show, and if you want to support the show, the best way that you can do it is to throw money at me. You'll see a, a little cash button down there in the live chat you just hit that and put in however much money you want to send us you may have to put in a credit or debit card if it's the first time you've ever sent a super chat but it's very easy and then you can throw money at us um we call out we read every single super chat every single night uh and we read and thank every single person that sends a super chat none tonight so if anybody wants to get them in we'll be wrapping things up shortly please do so shortly Otherwise, we're going to wrap things up here and call it a quick one. Um, I uh, 
I didn't give him a time for the interview. So, you know, uh, honestly, when I have somebody that's a great guest like him, I just let them decide. If he's got an hour and or an hour and 15 minutes to give us, then great. That's how long the interview was going to be. Rockstar8970 Abel says, well, it was fun. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, always, I always love talking about that, talking to Stan. And uh, instead of catching up offline, I thought we would just do it right online. Um, Yes, Patrick Sheehan uh, offering a very uh, astute observation, saying Stan Gordon has never tried purpose to purposefully fool anyone. No, he just goes out and investigates, and then he tells people what, what people said or what he found or what their experience was like. I don't find any problem with that whatsoever. Uh, you know, I, I don't consider him in the same class as any of the uh, UFO hucksters or Bigfoot hucksters. Um and if you do get his books, it's, he's a lot more matter of fact in the books and, uh, you know, dates, times, people he talked to, witnesses, uh, if there's any evidence, if there's an inclusion of that, right? Stacy BDF is here and says, great show as always. Have a good night, all. Yeah, I uh, thank you for your kind, uh, kind words, right? Martin Wright says, old friends are fun. They know how mad you are. Yeah, and they know the history of some of the crazy other stuff you did before you're, what you're doing now, right? So uh, they're good. The old friends are the best friends, right? And unfortunately, nobody tells you that the further you get in life, the less old friends that you're going to have. I mean, things happen. First of all, people die. Uh, second of all, you know, especially a lot of my old friends that I grew up with, male friends, like, you know, you get a wife and kids and, and a job and you're busy and you just don't have time. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, we'd spend like 80 hours a week just hanging out with my friends, doing different stuff. And you just don't have that kind of time the older that you get. But it's always good to catch up with some uh, with some old friends. Patrick Sheehan with a kind and generous 499 super sticker, longtime supporter of the show. Thank you for your continued support of the show. Uh, this is a viewer supported show. So, uh, one of the best ways to support me is to hit that super chat button down there and throw some money in our hat. It really does help us to keep the show going. You can also become a Patreon supporter for as little as a dollar a month or send me a PayPal donation. I have not checked the PayPal donations in a while. So, I'm going to do that and we'll see. Uh, we read every single donation sent to us. We read and we thank everybody. So I'm looking at the PayPal donations and no new PayPal donations since uh, November 10th, but that's quite all right. Um, I want to thank everybody who has been kind and generous enough to send a PayPal donation in the past. I really do appreciate it. And Sally Van Digvoord says, thanks for your hard work. Well, thank you, Sally, and I appreciate your kindness, your generosity, and your support. Uh, it really does help us. I can't tell you how happy it makes me that there's people all over the world that send, that throw a few bucks in the hat. And for those that don't know, there's something in performing circles called busking. And what busking is, you may have seen it, is being a street performer. You stand on a corner, you put a hat in front of you, and you do your thing. And people walking by, if they like what you're doing, can throw a couple of bucks in your hat. Or I've seen guitar players. They put the guitar case. They open that up in front of them and people and they play guitar. And if people 
like what they're doing, uh, they uh, will throw a couple bucks in the hat. Uh, I remember my first experience with busking was that I got a little Casio keyboard. It was like this big. It was tiny. It was like the cheapest one that my dad could get because he was cheap. <laughs> and uh, I learned how to play that pretty well for a little cheap keyboard. It was the first keyboard I had. We didn't have a piano in our house or anything like that, or I didn't have access to a piano. So all I had was this little, you know, 12 inch long or maybe a little longer, I don't know, Casio keyboard. Um, and I asked my dad after I learned to play it pretty good, I said, there's not enough keys on here to play some of the songs that I'm trying to learn because it's so small. I need a full size keyboard, you know, a full size with, you know, 88 keys. And my dad's like 88 keys. You don't need that. And I'm like, yes, I do. Anyway, we disagreed. So my dad said, well, uh, you know, if you could figure out how to earn half the money, I'll, we'll buy it. So I went to the Philadelphia Riverfront, and I'll never forget this. I was so nervous, and I got extra batteries. <laughs> and I don't know. I must have been uh, pre-high school. And I just sat there at the riverfront, which was a tourist area. There's lots of people there, and I put a hat out. And before you knew it, I had earned not only half the money to buy a full-size keyboard. I earned all the money to buy a full-size keyboard. Put a little sign out that said, I want to earn a better keyboard. I need a bigger keyboard to play better songs. And people would come by and talk to me, and I would take breaks. But I would go down there, and, and I would just sit there and play piano songs, the, the only songs that I could play, like Chop Suey and a bunch of other crappy songs, Green Sleeves, <laughs> even a polka song uh, that my dad taught me. Anyway, uh, I learned then that if you're a guy that is – that is really trying people don't mind people don't mind helping you people don't mind throwing a couple of bucks in your hat when you're trying to do something creative and following a dream and uh, i'm happy to say that i bought a better keyboard and that started me on a whole path of becoming a musician um that little tiny one was terrible <laughs> but the, you know i got a bigger you know a decent one it was still pretty cheap but and years later would buy a better one and a better one and a better one. And that would lead to a lifelong fascination with very expensive keyboards and synthesizers that is with me to today. Uh, but luckily, thanks to um, software plugins, I, I don't have to spend that kind of money, right? Martin Wright mentioned, I can't donate every week, but well, when I can, Stephen, you're the best. No, uh, listen, no, don't ever feel like, I, I don't want anybody to ever feel obligated because there is another way that you can help the show, and I see people doing it. And here's the other best way that you can help the show. You can like, comment, subscribe, and share to these videos. The algorithm loves when you comment. The algorithm loves when you like it, or even when you dislike it. All engagement, the algorithm loves. And... When the algorithm loves us, it raises us in the search engines. It suggests our videos to more viewers. So failing a couple of bucks to throw in our hat, that's no problem. Another way you can help us is to copy these videos, email them to your friends, post them on your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, wherever you can post them, anywhere on social media. That really does help. It helps more people discover us. It helps more people find us. It helps more it helps us to gain a bigger, better audience. And that's certainly just as much help as throwing us a couple of bucks. Money isn't everything. And I realize, brother, can you spare a dollar? It's rough out there. So if you can't spare a dollar, that's the other best way you can help us. 
Also, I just want to remind anybody listening in audio podcast land, um, you're missing half the fun. We record all the shows live here on Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. So go on over to YouTube, put Truth Seekers, one word, in the search bar. Look for me, the strange guy with the sunglasses. I'm Stephen Cambian, your host. And if you're not already, smash the subscribe button, hit that notification bell, and please come here when we do the live chats and record the shows live. A big part of our show here is the live interaction. It's Truth Seekers, plural. I cannot do the show alone. I need you guys to come with me and ask some of these guests these great questions that people offer or uh, add your comments. Let us know. We love the interactivity here, and I believe you will too. We've got a great uh, bunch of people in chat here, um, and it really would be fun for us to have you as well. You are most welcome, whether you're a skeptic, a believer. Uh, we'd like to have a big tent here where everybody is welcome. All we ask is that you be respectful in the live chat uh, and try no cursing. YouTube doesn't like it in the live chat. Figure out another way to say what you're going to say. That's fine. Uh, we want you here with us. We want to grow our tent. We want you skeptics, you believers, and all you people in between. If you're an experiencer, if you've had a strange paranormal event or experience, you can email me at truthseekershow at, at gmail.com. You can come here and join our live chat discussions. And um, you are most welcome. So please don't hesitate to come here and uh, be a part of Truth Seekers. It's, it's a community here. You can also join our Discord. There is links in the description. So the live chats don't end when the live show ends anymore. We have a Discord that you can join and you can chat with Truth Seekers audience members all day long, all night long, which reminds me, I have to check in because I've been very busy and I haven't. And uh, finally, just one final bit of business. I'm not blaming anybody uh, or anything, really. I don't want anybody to get the wrong opinion, but somebody was in the comments saying, hey, you say you answer emails and I emailed you and you didn't email me back, but I did reply to him about what he emailed me in the YouTube comments. So I guess going forward, you know, if somebody's going to have a problem with the accuracy of what I say, I said, I, I return, I message everybody who emails me back. That's what I said. What I should say is I try to reply to everybody with questions or, you know, whatever, but, but people have to realize that as this thing grows, doing that is no longer a 20-minute endeavor every day. It could sometimes be hours. I've gotten 10 emails today and 22 uh, YouTube comments. So while I can't always reply to every single person anymore, I'm going to try. And if you really have something important to communicate to me, email it to me a few times. Remind me. I'm a human. I get busy. I forget. And in that person's case, yeah, he emailed me, and then I told him to email me again, and then I replied to him what I thought was sufficient, like, uh, I have that case on my list, and I have to look into it more, and, and as soon as I've completed my work on that case, we'll do a whole show on that case you want me to cover. But my point is that, you know, I, I, please don't hold me to some huge high standard, and if I say... I try to message everybody back. I mean it. I try. Or, you know, maybe I was incorrect in saying I do message everybody back. I try. I do the best I can to communicate with all of you. Most of you know that. Uh, so, you know, going forward, I'm going to say I do the best that I can to communicate with everybody. Remember, 
you can follow me at Stephen Cambion on Twitter. Uh, that's a great way to get a, get a hold of me. Uh, Mr. Certified is here and says, thanks for doing what you do, Steve. But yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to see you here. I think that's how you would say that. Mr. It's not certified. Mr. C3 to 5 3D. Mr. Certified 3D, tell me how to say it. I don't know. Some people would. It's a cool uh, user ID, but it's sure hard to say, right? Yeah. Yeah, Dustin Miles says, wasn't me, I just got here. No, and listen, I'm not I'm not upset with what that person said. They're prop they're accurate. I said I I return all the emails and sometimes I don't, but I still try to communicate with him and I thought that was sufficient. So, you know, it is what it is. This is just stuff that happens and I'm trying to address it and be I'm always honest with my audience and I'm trying to be in this case. So uh I want to thank each and every person that uh helped us today to praise the cash, right? Uh, that's a good way to help us is to send some money our way. And when I started this show, knowing that I was going to have to be constantly asking people for money, I didn't really know how to do it. So what I decided to do is go to the experts. Do you know who's experts at asking people and getting people to send money in? Televangelists. They're the best at it. Nobody is better than those guys at somehow motivating people to part with their hard-earned money and give it to them. So I am going to just lean on those guys as I say, first of all, thanks to all the Super Chat donators and donators in general and to the Patreon supporters and to the PayPal donators. Thank you for your kindness, your generosity, and your support and for helping us to praise the cash. want you to do if the Lord is speaking to you us just bring some baskets down just leave them there I'm not finished I got one more point to make this is what I want you to do thank you miss Marguerite I brought her because I want you to understand that the work must continue this is not a plea for money it's a plea for partnership so that we can be what we're supposed to be I just need 497 people to say, I'll do it, I'll do 300. I like being able to help others. I like being able to fulfill my dreams and it, it takes money to do what we're doing. That's, you know, that's why God gives you influence to help the world, to make, make it a better place. We don't ask for money and people send in millions of dollars to help us keep the broadcast on the air. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a nice place to live and being blessed. I don't, and, yeah. and money should never be the focus of your life. If that's all you're doing, it, that, that's shallow. You should, you, you know, it should be to, to be a blessing to others. I believe that you will agree with me when I say that in the last few months, 
that, and especially the last few weeks, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit on the telecast has been exceptional. The letters that we are receiving, the comments that you are giving us, but above all, it's just there. And we thank the Lord so much for it because it is the anointing that breaks the yoke. It breaks that yoke asunder, whatever the yoke may be. I want to thank you also for the help that you gave us last week concerning the appeals that we made, how we are rejoicing. I wish I could give you a total now. I can't. I just can't. I don't have it yet. But I'm asking you, please, God spoke with a lot of you that did not respond. And we love you and we thank you, but when God speaks to you, I know he'll bless you if you will respond. And if you could send a gift of $50. Somebody's mentioning that Swagger got busted with a gay prostitute. Yes, I believe that he did. I believe that he did. Um, and it's interesting. There was some uh, anti-gay politician who also got busted with a gay prostitute not long ago, right? <laughs> Pragmatic says, can't be an off-screen shooting a dollar gun. His kid is amazing. Yeah, I tried to get him to shoot the gun, but he was having problems pulling the trigger, Pragmatic. I still have the gun. I still have the money gun, and we're making new money bumpers, right? And, uh, yeah, uh, Xavier has decided that he wants a uh, Nintendo Switch, which is a big ask for him, and he doesn't ask for expensive things very often. So my wife and I are going to try to make that happen, but, you know, uh, those things are expensive. Uh, this one light has a moon here, right? Like, it's out of place. <laughs> Yeah, and I want to thank all the super chat donors, the Patreon people, and um, uh, the uh, the PayPal donors, the super chatters, and the Patreon supporters because uh, we've got a whole new set here uh, and multiple camera angles now as well. Um, and we were able to do that thanks to the kindness, generosity, and support of the super chat people. Um, Oh, I can't reach the camera to pan it around, and, and this thing shouldn't be here in my face, and we're still working on it. But uh, we have a much bigger set here, uh, bigger set pieces and um, more power, and we'll soon be upgrading to 1080p. Finally, uh, StreamYard only lets you do 720 at the beginning level, so we're up updating to do 1080p and I believe five more streaming locations and uh, also, um, I'm going to announce this here, even though it's not ready yet. Um, um, we have expanded and are now available. Most of the Truth Seekers uh, shows, the, the total Truth Seekers shows, are now available on Odyssey, uh, which is something I'm very uh, very happy about because first of all uh, I do have backups but the backup that I have of all of the truth seekers content is a bit old already it's a few months old and ask anybody who's streaming uh, five times a week or seven times a week uh, some weeks I don't know it's very difficult to keep up with the backups uh, so uh, and I highly recommend this to anybody who has a show there is a new video site 
well, relatively new, called Odyssey. And uh, we've become partners with them. Um, Truth Seekers is now available on Odyssey. And one of the great things is if you uh, sign up for Odyssey and you have a YouTube channel with good content on it, they will take all of your YouTube content and pull it into Odyssey. It's just a few clicks and they do it. Now, unfortunately, this is not a, um, it is not a flawless process. What do I mean by that? They pulled in all but our very latest videos, and now I have to start uploading the latest videos to Odyssey every time. We, in other words, every time we make a new video, once they were done with the import, which took a week uh, for them to pull all the YouTube videos and put them up at the exact quality, and they even copy all the video descriptions, everything for you. It's a great, I, I believe that Odyssey is going to be a leader in uh, in new platforms, new video platforms. So we've got the Truth Seekers. Uh, yeah, and look at that. It did. It updated. It's just slow to update. So the Odyssey channel may always be a little bit behind the YouTube channel. Um, in other words, you know, look, we're up to a uh, show from last week that it is updated. It, it takes time for Odyssey to get to YouTube, download the videos, and put them up. But what we see here is that the entire, virtually the entire Truth Seekers, entire history and catalog since the very first show is now almost completely available. They're a week behind. But still... I think this is very important for several reasons. First of all, should some member, yeah, see this? More than a year ago was the first episode of Truth Seekers here uh, with Jason Quit. More than a year ago. Uh, and so uh, anyway, the the good news is this. There is now a a backup of almost the entire history of truth seekers um it's all there except for the last week or so uh so there we have it the entire almost the entire history of truth seekers is now backed up and available on odyssey all but the last week or so of shows um and i'm still navigating and learning this do i have to upload those last week or do i just wait it looks like i just have to wait and and odyssey may be a week behind or something like that but Every show that we do, which is broadcast live on Facebook, Twitch, and uh, YouTube, will now later be available on Odyssey. And I'm going to put the Odyssey link into the live chat here so that you can all, if you have an Odyssey account, you can uh, become a follower of Truth Seekers on Odyssey. And if you don't have an Odyssey account, it's very quick and easy to sign up for an Odyssey account. Um, and I highly recommend that you do that. And Odyssey also has this interesting way of paying uh, content creators um, because they give you some kind of crypto credits. Uh, but I'm told that the crypto credits work out to about a dollar per one. You know, in other words, the, there's some exchange rate. Maybe it's 80 cents. Sometimes maybe it's a dollar, 10 other times. But one of their crypto credits is equal to about a dollar. And we can see in a very short time, I'm already up to $23 on Odyssey. So I want to thank people who are uh, on Odyssey. You send credits to content creators that you like. And I'm not sure who or why, but we're already up to um, we're already up to 
Odyssey, uh, we're already up to $23, uh, which is great. And they give daily rewards and other things. But my main interest in signing up for Odyssey really is that should some, listen, it's very, YouTube can be a very dangerous place lately. I could have a guest on that could say the letter of the alphabet and my entire channel could be deleted. I could have a guest on, even though I inform guests we don't talk about the current health crisis or any of that stuff, could start talking about that. YouTube doesn't like it. They could stamp out my entire channel could just be deleted. Um, it's very scary for a content creator, especially one that's a little lazy about backups. Uh, but now we see, thanks to Odyssey, and I want to thank them, uh, my experience so far with this platform has been amazing. I signed up a few clicks later. They're importing every video I've ever made on YouTube a year's worth, and it was done in about a week. Um not sure if they're going to catch up or <coughs> part of me <coughs> almost made it <coughs> through today without coughing and hacking up a lung. So the good news is that should anything terrible happen with YouTube, um, in, in other words, if, if I get strikes, if the channel gets deleted, uh, whatever, I'm not going to worry so much anymore because now uh, there is a backup. There is a backup plan in place. There is a backup video platform in place for truth seekers right now. Uh, you know, now I don't anticipate problems with our YouTube channel because we're being very careful. I'm even coming up with a handout to give to guests saying, please don't talk about this. Please don't talk about that. Um, because to me, it's, it's just not worth, it's just not worth the hassles to talk about the few subjects that the platform has decided it would prefer people not speak about, right? There's just some subjects that you don't want to talk about, uh, on, on some platforms and we're a guest here so i have to um i have to respect the platform's wishes it's not my platform i'm a guest here um but we've got truth seekers on odyssey now um yeah and i want to thank area 503 for uh informing us about that and getting me to sign up and i think he sent me a, a few credits as well so thanks to area 503 check out his youtube channel he's also mirroring all this content on odyssey which i think is a very good um is a very good thing to do uap collective is here speaking my language juno 60 juno 2 jupiter 6 jupiter 8 jupiter 4 memory move pro 1 yamaha cs30 korg ms20 tb303 i have a tb303 tr909 tr808 cr78 yeah I've got an old Cork Poly 800. I've got, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Yamaha DX70. I've got a lot of weird old synths, and I love them, UAP Collective. Nice to see you here. I'm trying to get a uh, builder recording studio back up again. I used to have a big commercial studio with plenty of room, and now, you know, uh, things are a little tight as far as room goes here. But we still manage to produce at least a few songs a month, and those go on Patreon. 
Um, so I'm going to play us out, actually, with one of my new songs. Uh, it's called The War Is One, and it's from uh, my new album that God knows when I'm going to finish it. I need to complete a few more songs, um, but I'm working very hard on actually completing it now. And if you're a Patreon supporter for as little as a dollar a month, you get the album for free, or you've been getting it. I think we're up to 16 or 17 songs of the album, which will be 20 songs in length, is already on Patreon. Now, those are the first mixes, so the all of the songs, I'm going to complete four more songs, and those will be on Patreon, and then I'm going to remix the entire album more properly, but that will be on Patreon. The whole new mix of the 20 song total album will be on Patreon, so it'll be free for all you Patreon supporters, but we will be selling it when it's finished, and I believe we're gonna sell it for $20, which includes a digital download and a physical CD. When's the last time you bought a CD? I'm gonna try to twist your arm and make you buy mine. I just think that people, digital downloads are fine, but people like getting that physical thing. And I'm willing to mail out the CDs to everybody who purchases this new album of mine. Also worthy of note is that my entire life I have hidden behind band names. And part of that was practical because I had some books on the music industry, which taught me that bands sell a lot more albums than solo artists. So I just made up a band. <laughs> and uh, my first project was just me and a bunch of synthesizers and drum machines and noisemakers and, you know, distortion boxes. Um, but I called it a band. And uh, later I would do this, uh, do, do that again. And later I did it again. My latest album is uh, Six of Design Shared It. It's a seven hour long concept album. And I called that band Dreams in the Dark because I felt like the old band, which had a lot of my old friends who had moved on and done other things, weren't around to play on it anymore. It didn't feel appropriate still calling it the old band name. So we came up with Dreams in the Dark. But this new album of mine um, will be the first album that I'm just putting my name on. I'm not going to hide behind a band name. It will be the first true solo album I've ever produced, even though most of the albums I've ever been involved with or produced were largely solo efforts with others helping. This new one, however, I produced 100% um, on my own except for one song, which was loaned to me, the music for which was loaned to me by Jason Quitt. Some of you know Jason Quitt. He did all the music with synthesizers and drum machines, etc., and and then I sang over it and added some additional tracks to but I still consider this to be a solo album uh, because ask anybody that's a musician, go try to produce 20 songs by yourself or even 19. Uh, <laughs> it is a big undertaking. So what can I say, friends? I want to thank everybody for being here. You always hear me say this. Always happy when there's an audience. So glad that you could come here today and be a part of mine. Uh, I am a uh, glad that we could reconnect with stan gordon he's the first guy that i've ever interviewed he's he helped me start my show the first show um and i've always been uh in his debt for that because a lot of people wouldn't help me when i started but he uh graciously uh, volunteered to do so tonight we got a little bit of an update from him hope to have him back as a regular guest uh and i hope you enjoyed it so i'm going to play this out with my new song it's called the war is one so until next time, friends, my name is Stephen Cambion. Good night and God bless all of you.